0: I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky.
1: And I'm Ben Weingarten.
2: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I think we have a, a great show for you today. I'm going to kick it off by talking about uh, what we can actually do, what the right needs to propose. Uh, for For the problem of loan forgiveness now that the Biden administration's plan is likely to be struck down. Um, Then I'm going to turn it over to Ben and he's going to talk also about universities but about some hopeful reforms that have been taking place in North Carolina and in Florida and what that says about what the right can do about this bastion of the left. Uh, and then Emily is going to talk to us about Atlanta's, quote, cop city, uh, which is real domestic terrorism, potentially. We're always talking about the phrase domestic terrorism. Um, and then finally, Josh is going to round us out by reporting back from CPAC, where he spent the last few days. So with that, I guess I'll kick it over to myself. Um, <laughs> so what, what I want to talk about this week is a proposal that I put out in The American Mind. Um, and there are two parts to it. One it argues that the right should accept that student loans are a real problem. Um, there is this personal responsibility meme on the right and way of talking about it. And I really think that that doesn't reflect the realities, the financial realities of going to college in the last 20 years, nor the financial realities of how the credentialing treadmill has made it very difficult not to go to college and not to take on that debt, right? Because. The, the way that we've subsidized universities and culturally encouraged people, everyone to go to university has created a glut of degrees. And now so people who choose not to and not to take on that debt are now competing for jobs with people who did, who pre- for jobs that previously did not require a degree. And all of this is backable by social science. Um, so there's this very bad credentialing treadmill. There's $1.8 trillion in outstanding loans. We're currently, we've spent about a that Biden has put into place. And all of this has created an enormous political pressure for bailouts. So even if the Supreme Court, uh, it seems likely after oral argument last week, strikes down the Biden forgiveness plan, uh, it won't erase the advantage that proposing that plan uh, gave to Democrats in the midterms where it sent young voters to the polls, almost certainly over this issue. Um, That really helped the Democrats in the last election. So the political pressure for these bailouts is going to remain. And I think that the right should think creatively about how we can use this to our advantage. So the second half um, of the second half of the proposal is, it is obviously regressive and unfair to tax Americans who are already struggling under this college subsidy system that is hurting students and hurting non-students alike. Um, That money should come out of endowments and real estate value of the universities. In any other context, we would call these predatory loans. Um, universities mail out flyers to every you know, 17, 16, 17-year-old 17 in the country, um, and every every student, once they graduate high school, basically gets a blank check loan from, from the government, a government-backed loan, to go and then give those dollars to the university. They get their money up front, right? So the students end up with debt on the back end. The universities have been escalating costs year after year after year to the point where the cost of university vastly outstrips the value of a degree for a lot of students and that's really what's creating um, this pressure for a bailout if people are simply not making enough money to make those kinds of loans worthwhile um and that's a basic economic proposition this is good for the right however um because let's, let's State it plainly. The universities are our enemies. The universities are ground zero for uh, these cultural revolutionaries that are graduating into every single institution, uh, public and private, that we're constantly talking about the effects of that here, right? We're talking about the DOJ and the politicization and and ideological, you know, um, going after ideological opponents that the DOJ appears to be engaged in. Now we're talking about the breakdown of the rule of law. We're talking about the fact that even in law schools, you can't have somebody like Ilya Shapiro as a professor because of a tweet, right? All of these things that we are concerned about universities are the ground zero for. And so to me, this is a win-win policy proposal. We get to seize the momentum on a real and popular message uh, with voters and at the same time it's a just proposal because universities are overwhelmingly responsible for this cost problem and therefore this debt problem so it is a just uh, there there are just place to drop the bill for this, in my opinion. Um, And I think it's good for the right politically. And I think it makes a lot of sense to uh, go after our ideological enemies. And in fact, the the sort of manufacturing factory of our ideological enemies uh, in this way. So
3: it seems to me that to use one of my favorite lines, that this is kind of a quintessential example of punishing one's enemy within the confines of the rule of law. Um, If you accept the premise that universities, that higher education are the enemy, and I agree with Inez that, as at least as presently constitutive, that is definitely the case. If I'm not mistaken, I think J.D. Vance's keynote address in NatCon 2 in Orlando was literally titled that. I think the title of his address was The University is the Enemy or something closely along those lines back before J.D. was a senator, back when he was then still a fairly nascent candidate um, in that Ohio Senate primary, if I recall the timeline correctly there. But yeah, I, I mean, stripping them of uh, of funding, stripping them of the ability to try to hire as many diversity crats as Heather McDonald likes to call them, you know, you know, uh, time in and time again, uh, the ability to kind of increase tuition orders of magnitude uh, uh, above what what inflation or, or other kind of reasonable kind of market forces would otherwise permit tuition to be raised. Anything that we can do to kind of to kind of tamp down on those excesses strikes me as as good policy, there's just simply no rational reason whatsoever why the federal government should have a a near monopoly on student loans. Um, I defer to Ness on the exact statistic, but I think it's like 90 plus percent of all student loans have have their origin in the federal government. Um, That is obviously monopolistic status at that point. There there was just simply no compelling reason why that should be the case. Um, You know, I I guess the silver lining here uh, is that my read on the oral argument that just happened in the Supreme Court is also Inez's read. It seems like we we will probably have the votes to strike this down. It's a a fairly straightforward, honestly, uh, application of the so-called major questions doctrine that the court reaffirmed in the West Virginia versus EPA case last term, which was a six, six to three case. You know, when you, when you get to these kind of, well, I shouldn't say always, but often, often when you get to these kind of more like economic, regulatory, administrative, state adjacent issues, the chief justice um, is willing to side with the conservative justices. I, I said almost, not always, because I just had a a horrific flashback to a Trump era case um, out of out of the University of of California, um, if, if I remember if correctly, but. I'm optimistic about this case. Uh, Hopefully, that's not let down because we have been optimistic and been let down many times by the court before.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is it's hard to object to what Inez lays out. And I think actually really the first point um, of her her essay, which is great, I encourage everybody to read it, is that the right needs to take student loan debt seriously is perhaps the most important because Everything else needs to flow from that. When we recognize the federal government's responsibility, when we recognize the political establishment's responsibility in convincing multiple generations of Americans to bankrupt themselves to the extent they say they are preventing marriage, they're putting off marriage, they're putting off home ownership, all of these things that would make them uh, likely more valuable members of their community, uh, more productive. Active members of their community, I don't mean that in a materialistic sense, but in the sense that they are creating other humans um, and investing in their communities at different levels. Um, it's, it's obviously a problem with which the federal government bears a lot of responsibility and culpability. So I, I think it's hard to object to the actual policy, especially as Inez uh, uh highlights here. You have major universities essentially functioning as hedge funds um and, and so obviously this is a proposal that can go a long way towards rolling that back but um my i, I think my main concern here is like with healthcare, uh, the republican party and the broader conservative movement um sort of uses the the genuine problem of entitlement like Obviously, there are a lot of millennials and Zoomers who feel entitled to student debt relief, even though they took out loans that they shouldn't have. And they have agency and, and responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing with healthcare. Like Obviously, people need to work, um, et cetera, et cetera. But because the right sort of latches onto those cases and uses that broad brush to paint the issue um, as a cop-out when they don't have a consensus policy, that's why I guess I think what Inez wrote is really important, because it is a consensus policy that people People, you know, can, can get behind. Uh, I wish one existed on health care, but uh, I commend Inez for uh, putting this out here.
1: Yeah, that's well said. And this is another example of weighing kind of uh, the prudence of the politics versus the ideal and the fact that you know, we can acknowledge on the one hand that moral hazard is a huge issue. But on the other hand, we can also acknowledge that the government's played a massive role in this. And so there ought to be a remedy and any and every remedy ought to be on the table. you know. As Emily was speaking, I was thinking about the fact that there's kind of a pox on every house in this because you have that massive student loan debt, which then makes people even more reliant on government. You have the massive escalation in the price of education as Josh noted, and there's some great charts obviously showing that you basically have deflation in prices and a whole slew of goods and services, but you have massive inflation outpacing everything Uh, when it comes to colleges and universities. And why? Well, in no small part because of the subsidization of government, but two, of course, the rise of the educational administrative state um, an adjunct of the government administrative state. And of course, these schools take Fed funds and get all sorts of other benefits from the federal government. So on every side, it's sort of a horrible picture that's painted. And so I think any tool, no matter how crude, ought to be considered. And proposals like this ought to be given a wide hearing and lauded for the fact that they're actually out there. Uh, if nothing else, you can shift the Overton window. and We ought to be thinking creatively about problems and in solving them in ways that we haven't in the past, which actually I think is a perfect segue into uh, my segment, which is loosely based around a piece I published out at uh, Real Career Education about a week ago, talking about some bright spots in the ways in which state lawmakers or their delegates, as it were, are using state power to actually shape and mold public education institutions, particularly higher education institutions. And, you know, one example that there's sort of been some controversy about, which I I kind of find laughable on its face, is in North Carolina, where there have been a couple moves of late, one by the Board of Trustees for UNC Chapel Hill. Which is effectively appointed by the state legislature, and then also the board of governors. They're also effectively governed by uh, the assembly, the state legislature there, which is a majority Republican in the uh, the, leg- the assembly branch as well as in the Senate. Um, so bicamerally, um, two reforms have been pushed. One in UNC Chapel Hill's board of trustees, they've pushed for the acceleration of this creation of a school of civic life, which is basically, it's described in totally innocuous terms as essentially welcoming, you know, broad and diverse debate on a whole slew of issues consistent with kind of the strategic plan of the school, uh, which aims to you know, prepare people for democracy, uh, but in this case, really, actually, genuinely prepare people to democracy, for democracy, it would seem, and foster debate, uh, which is a good thing, obviously. Neutrally, by the way, the way this is presented, so it's not like some right wing conspiracy here, Uh, but of course, because the Board of Trustees is appointed by Republicans, they've come under uh, huge backlash, which I just find again laughable because they're talking about creating one school at UNC Chapel Hill, potentially to be housed within an existing school with 20 some odd professors uh, to encourage this kind of debate and thinking. Uh, But actually, the school's accreditor has come out and essentially threatened the trustees, basically saying, how dare you usurp this kind of power, that this, in effect, is about influencing the curriculum, and that it's the teachers, the faculty here, the administrators who ought to have a say over the schools, not you, the trustees, despite the fact that the trustees and the board of governors there are the ones who are actually representing the public, whose tax dollars go into the creation of those schools, and who, in effect, give their consent in the fact that those schools were created in the first place. So, of course, the schools ought to serve the benefits of the citizens of the states that pay for them. But that's considered a radical concept by their accreditor. And to the extent their accreditor does pull accreditation from UNC Chapel Hill, that threatens its federal funding. So it's hugely significant. Also, the Board of Governors at UNC has voted for a resolution to ban The imposing, the imposition of DEI statements and related statements when it comes to admissions, promotion, tenure, hiring of of, uh, administrators and educators, as well. Um, Again, it's kind of like an obvious thing, but of course, causing a controversy. Uh, The notion that those acting on behalf of the people, in effect, to rein in higher education institutions qualifies as some kind of radical act, I think is very telling in and of itself. But I also think the hysteria on the left over these sorts of moves, which are relatively modest in the full scheme of things, even if you just look at where these institutions might have been 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, it's very telling that they are deathly afraid of these kinds of changes because it represents a realization that, gosh, if conservatives across the country or even just nominal Republicans across the country realize that they can actually use their tools of political power, that could actually significantly reduce the left's power over these institutions to mold and shape them and then create these armies of social justice warriors or whatever the next iteration of that's going to be And then lastly obviously in florida and we could spend you know a whole episode talking about florida's higher ed reforms but notably last term it went after the accreditation monopoly and broke the monopoly of the very accreditor threatening potentially to pull the accreditation at unc chapel hill But also this term, there's an expansive uh, legislative offering that's out there, which includes things like, for example, uh, incorporating more of a traditional core curriculum, traditional Judeo-Christian Western curriculum throughout public schools in the state, uh, funding those institutions that are going to further studies in those subjects, abolishing, not just getting rid of those DEI litmus tests, but also actually defunding any and all DEI or CRT related bureaucracies period throughout the state's public schools and then arguably the most radical and revolutionary far-ranging effort uh the governor's push to install on the board of trustees at new college of florida a purported uh a liberal arts school there but an illiberal arts school in practice uh, with the likes of uh, chris Rufo, uh charles kessler Seth mark bauerline several um matt spalding i'm probably going to forget some names here but a whole slew of folks To convert that into what's been dubbed kind of the Hillsdale of the South, to me, this should be the baseline effort that every single Republican governor and Republican lawmaker ought to aim for. I have a quote in this piece. I'll just read from it because I'll probably I probably wrote it better than I would phrase it offhand here. But I say that it's incumbent on lawmakers and their appointees to use every lever of power they can within every educational institution under their purview. And by the way, I think this should go beyond educational institutions to combat the divisiveness and forcible conformity engendered by DEI, CRT, and the like, and to replace it with a system rooted in the values and principles on which Western civilization is based. I think that should be the baseline standard for public education institutions and every single other public institution as well. No public institution should work against the principles on which those institutions were built. And I think that ought to be kind of the litmus test standard agenda by which every single Republican lawmaker ought to be judged. So I wonder what you think of these higher ed reform efforts, Broadway, and then if that's a good litmus test that we should actually impose starting in 2024.
2: Yeah. So, um, just a a few points that I'll run through quickly. Uh, one, what Chris Rufo along with Matt Spaulding, Charles Kessler, et cetera, are doing in Florida is a giant white pill. Um, it's really good to see conservatives actively using the powers and levers that they, they do have in public institutions to transform those institutions back to something more according with the public trust. Um, there's been some pushback about this generally, like people like, um, Stephen Pinker or whatever say that this is illiberal, which I don't even understand. Frankly, it's even more ridiculous in the K-12 context. These are public institutions. The public has every right democratically to decide what values will be taught in them. And I think a lot of these people are tied to some idea of neutrality that doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a neutral education. Um, there's always a perspective, values um built in to like that's literally what education is it's rearing up children uh to go in a particular way right um to to use the the biblical um analogy here that 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 has always been part of education um it would be unquestioned that the state has the power to do this uh even 30 40 years ago so this is not some like new post-liberal thing that we all need to argue about this is a very um easily falls easily falls uh, this kind of application of power easily falls within the rubric of Um, liberalism that hasn't just been hijacked by the last 30 years. So it doesn't even require us to re-examine our assumptions, I don't think, so much. It's an obvious and straightforward application of political power. Um, And then finally, the the accreditation point is incredibly important. We we will continue to run up against this, which means not only we need to build into state laws uh, multiple accreditation points, uh, but we need to make sure that we have accreditation organizations that are prepared to step up and take take the task. Um, I think it's really important that this is UNC chapel hill this is a big and um prestigious state university so it's it's uh unlikely that they're unable to find a creditor that might actually be difficult for a smaller school and finally federal money the fact that unc is terrified of losing federal money should be a lesson to conservatives these loans and corresponding grants are a huge tool And in in past years, Republicans have been unwilling even to append an amendment requiring that public universities adhere to the First Amendment in order to get that money. Those are obligations they already have under positive federal law and under the Constitution, right? There is nothing radical about that. They voted down amendments to do that. In the future, the right should be looking at what they can attach to this money uh, to direct the behavior of universities because they are wholly dependent the exception of Hillsdale, Bob Jones, and like three others, universities are wholly dependent on federally backed student loans and grant funds.
3: So uh, real quick, because we're running short on time on the segment here. Um, so look, I mean, Chris Rufo has been mentioned numerous times on this show. Uh, Chris, is a, Chris is a friend of mine, and I'm sure some of yours as well. He, uh, You know, this whole idea of kind of institutional recapture, I think is something that the right has to embrace. And, you know, New College of Florida is obviously doing a good job here. One thing that I will say, um, I'm definitely someone of like a Florida boosterist on this show, and I really love what our governor is doing on so many fronts here. But I, I think it's important to emphasize something that Ben said, which is this really should be the bare minimum. I mean, I think back to NatCon 3 and, uh, you know, our other friend David Azrad's speech. And, you know, I, David had some funny line. I'm not I, I don't remember verbatims. So I'm not gonna, I'm not going to be able to do it justice. But he basically said, you know, you know, the right has such low expectations. I mean, you know, Governor DeSantis smacks around a woke corporation like the Walt Disney Company a little bit, and that, you know, everyone's like on their feet applauding. And it was a great move. I, I have been an emphatic supporter of what he did to Disney. And I do think that it is, that is a seminal moment. But these sort of things really should be the bare minimum. Um, it's really just not asking that much, but go ahead, Emily, sorry.
0: No, I think that's like, whatever this mystical version of neutrality is that Steven Pinker wants, um, you know, doing the bare minimum to... Uh, like capture some sort of long lost uh, faux nostalgia for something that never really existed. Um, it, it, even if we had that, uh, there, there are just so many other captured cultural institutions that your version of neutrality, this like enlightenment, uh, like end of history version of neutrality is not going to be a, a enough to cultivate, I use the word cultivate intentionally, um, a healthy American culture because we do have to uh, have consensus points on some things that aren't purely neutral on that point. We're transitioning to a developing story out of Atlanta that uh, hasn't gotten enough media attention, in my opinion. This is roughly a protest that's been going on since like December, uh, maybe even longer than that. Uh, In Atlanta, they are constructing like a 90 million, a very, very expensive, sprawling fire and police training facility uh, in a forest there. And some members of Antifa and the far left have been sort of variously camping out and staging protests in the space, uh, you know, arguing, obviously, as they do, that it's the police are fascists and they are the ones opposing the fascism um, by opposing the construction of this training center. Uh, Now, some weeks ago, I think this was in December, a protester named Tortuguita was shot and killed Um, The protesters and the police have very different versions of what happened in that death. Uh, There, there are still open questions. Uh, The protester did have a gun, his family, uh, their family, I think I don't know I think I actually think the protesters non-binary but I'm I'm not positive of that uh so take that for what you will uh, says that it's it's strange that there was a gun found there's a whole thing going on with this um but uh, the the bottom line is a protest last night we're taking this on Monday so Sunday night uh I say protest but what I I really mean is riot uh, ended in the arrests of 23 people uh, who have been charged with domestic terrorism. Only two of those people are from Georgia. Only two of them have current Georgia addresses. Um, I'm reading more from my notes here. Um, they were throwing, the police say they threw fireworks. There's video of that. You can see them throwing fireworks at the cops. Uh, police say they also threw Molotov cocktails, large rocks and bricks. Again, there is video of some of this. And even if you look at the accounts of uh, some pro-Antifa media, pro-Antifa social media, it's it's pretty clear that the, the protesters instigated the violence. Uh, now, I think Everyone here uh, probably would understand, especially as we're commemorating, sadly, uh, or remembering—I shouldn't use the word commemorating, but remembering—the tragedy uh, that was Waco and remembering all of the federal government's failures in Waco, uh, the move bombing in Philadelphia, which was a leftist group, not a not the Branch Davidians um, or, or or a uh, evangelical Christian group. Um, we we are all now more clear-eyed than ever before about federal law enforcement's um, treatment of, you know, anti-establishment, ideological groups, and how uh, tactically or intentionally that can go wildly off course, whether left or right. Um, But all that is to say, uh, these domestic terrorism charges that the left is now prepared to argue um, at least the far left and Antifa are prepared to argue are, you know, this is, this is an abuse of the domestic terrorism label, et cetera, et cetera, seem to be perfectly warranted here. And I put this in the context of uh, something that both Antifa have said and, you know, critics from like the Atlantic, which published just today a very long story that both sides basically leftist uh, political violence and says, you can, you it it seems like perhaps we are on the cusp of uh, a lot of domestic violence, both from the left and from the right. Obviously, they're focusing on January 6th, um, all of that stuff. But in this like crystal clear case right here, in the case of Portland, which the Atlantic article completely both sides and pretends as though it's the fault of like right leaning groups that violently leftists just existed in the city of Portland for getting into violent skirmishes, it's, it's all their fault. Um, there's just no world in which the media is going to handle any of this fairly. I do agree that it feels like we're in a season of, of heightened violence. And I want to open that up to the group. I do think that this is not like, I, I read an Antifa tweet before I started this um saying you know this is coming to a city near you basically if it's you know not stopped now and they mean if the police are not stopped but uh the domestic terrorism charges based on the video evidence i've seen now seem warranted um, and it, it does, you know, 2020, it, we're just going to be in a rolling version of 2020, not at the fever pitch that 2020 was, but um, maybe, uh, but always vulnerable, I think, to devolving into something like the anarchy of that summer. Once again, it feels like that at least. So let me open it up to the group and just ask, um, is this an indication of that broader contextual uh, reality that we might be in a, a season of heightened political violence in this country? Um, thoughts on Cop City? Sure.
2: What, what, I mean, oh, I, go,
3: go ahead, and Go ahead.
2: Just really, I actually have a, a very minor thing to say, or very short at least, which is there have been periods like this of heightened um, sort of political violence in the United States in the 20th century, the 1920s, and the 1970s, both periods of heightened political violence. I think this is potentially much worse. There, there's a strain of thought that goes basically. You know we we're we're too uh doom-pilled we're we, we are too doomsday um you, the united states has gone through difficult periods of time right 1968 saw a lot of riots we said in the late 60s, there's a series of, of very important assassinations, you know, including Martin Luther King and, and Bobby Kennedy and, and the president right? uh, before that. Like th- basically, this is all, all we, we have been here before and we will be here again. Um, I think it, it has the potential to be much worse because this kind of radicalism is now at the heart and center of institutions. And so there's no underlying foundation upon which you can have seasons of this kind of heightened political violence. Um, I think it's actually actually a much more dangerous situation than any of the historical comparisons, except perhaps going before the Civil War.
3: So I just want to say that when I first read about this story that is happening outside Atlanta with this effective kind of Antifa takeover of this police training facility, and the only reason I read about it, because I, I first heard about it, I'm trying to remember, maybe it was like a month, month and a half ago or so, I only read about it because Eric Erickson decided to blog about it. And Eric lives there in Georgia. This up until very recently received virtually no national attention whatsoever, which is just shocking. I mean, I I remember when I first encountered Eric's blog on this, I, I like my eyes almost like gouged out of my sockets. I was like, oh my God, like, like like is this real here? I mean, like they have basically just taken over this facility. There have been gunfights. Um, It's actually even worse than that. The activists that were called in from out of state, um, you know, went to like the homes and the churches uh, of the contractor that the the independent contractor that was involved in like constructing the facility and they basically tried to shout down the church services. I mean, it's just like disgusting, like. Like abhorrent conduct. I mean, straight out of the same leftist conduct that we saw in the aftermath of the Dobbs abortion leak. You know, when they went to kind of the Catholic churches during mass and they were protesting the same, just horrific, horrific, Marxist Leninist stuff all over again. I, I mean, I guess for me personally, uh, you know, I, I mean, as as, as Emily mentioned, um, uh, or I think you mentioned Emily, you know, uh, the SP. PLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, one of the attorneys. Oh, that's another
0: fun part of this.
3: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I can't help but grin here, <laughs> given what the Southern Poverty Law Center has has just re- has recently put me through, um, in recent months. You know, they have a, a an attorney who has now been charged with domestic terrorism for for his involvement, um, in in Cop City outside Atlanta. It is worth noting that the Southern Poverty Law Center, in the not so distant past, has been a a, a a recurring uh, informant, I guess you say, or source when it comes to kind of providing democratic presidential administrations with how to update their domestic terrorist organizations and things like that. So that is pretty, pretty freaking ironic, I think, to put it mildly there. And, you know, just the final thing I'll say on this is, you know, the war on cops, the the war on law enforcement is just, it's it's real. It is so, so real. Every so often, there were some tiny glimmers of hope. You know, so so Joe Joe Biden, to his modicum of credit, you know, has said that he will not veto this Republican-led bill to overturn the D.C. City Council's horrific decision when it comes to kind of decreasing mandatory sentences for carjackings and things like that. You know, Lori Lightfoot getting under twenty percent of the vote in her mayoral re-election. she is not going to be mayor of Chicago. They might actually go for a worse candidate, so don't get your hopes up quite too much yet. But we'll see what they do there. So there there are some glimmers of hope there, but you know, time and time again, Ben and I were privately texting about this a couple of weeks ago or so. You know, if Republicans and the conservatives do not once and for all just flip their middle fingers to the coke criminal justice reform garbage, you know, the Jarvanka, Kim Kardashian first step back insanity and just say we want criminals in jail. We want to support the police, period, full stop, end of story. They don't
1: stand for that. They stand for nothing. Well, I'll be brief. It's kind of Sad that this is where my mind goes in connection with this, but I can only think about from the cynical political perspective what, how are the domestic uh, terrorism charges here that have been brought going to be turned around and used to go all that much more aggressively against uh, the right when there's an opening for this Justice Department to do so? Like I cannot help but think that because this is such an obvious case where you can legitimately make the make the claim that this is domestic terror and that domestic terrorism charges ought to be brought they'll be they'll use this to say look the justice department is equal and impartial you know i'll note that that joe biden not saying he won't veto uh, that piece of legislation of course comes in an election cycle less than two years away Um, and i see a similar potential dynamic at play here with the justice department that's obviously being investigated ostensibly anyway by the republican house so sadly your mind now always turns i think almost uh, instinctively to how is this going to be used politically as opposed to the merits of the case and the awfulness of the fact that guess what antifa is not an idea it actually is a movement and arguably a domestic terrorist movement and ought to be treated accordingly but the problem is and maybe it's not a problem because There is no I I don't I don't think that there is any more some kind of limiting principle of, well, if you don't set the precedent, then the other side won't do it. I think the left will do whatever it needs to do whenever it needs to do it to railroad its political foes. But obviously, you know, the risk of pushing for domestic terrorism charges against the left is that they'll they'll be used against the right. But we've already seen it used. So the principle is already gone. There is no limiting principle. There is no slippery slope here. We are where we are. So. You know, I guess there's some, you know, Schadenfreude here is probably the best word to use. But let's see actually how these cases are prosecuted and then how liberally domestic terrorism charges are going to be thrown at people by this Justice Department going forward as well.
3: All right. So um, let's take it home here by making a fairly hard transition. So I was at CPAC this year, um, not for a long period of time. I was there for one night, basically two full days. So um, I did a panel on on Friday on a, on the topic of Israel's judicial reform controversy, which we've discussed on on this show, and there's no need to kind of get back into the substance of that particular debate. But I kind of wanted to talk about like what I saw at CPAC and like you know like what that says about kind of um, the conservative movement um, and and where we are. So uh, I am not a regular CPAC person. I, 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 it's, it's possible I've been to the fewest CPACs out of all four of us. Actually, this is only my second time I, I, I've been to one. Um, and uh, you know it's a large crowd, but you know, it, literally everyone I talked to there who had been to to more crowd to more CPAC said that it was a down year. I think I think the number that I heard was somewhere between maybe four to five thousand registered attendees. I think like forty five hundred or so for general admission. I think in previous years, um, at kind of the, the Trump peak of CPAC, if you will, I think the number was probably closer to seven thousand. Um, don't quote me on that, but that's kind of anecdotally what I what I have heard there. And it's just true that, like a lot of the big speeches, um in, including president President Trump's speech, were not given to to a full crowd. I mean, there were empty seats in in, in the back there. And uh, it's it, it's tough to know exactly what to make of that. I mean, the energy at, at CPAC, like a lot of these conferences is definitely still palpable. You know, people are on their feet. They're applauding. Uh, but, you know, these are like the plugged in of the plugged in. and, I, 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 you know, I guess when I turn it over to you guys, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts as to like why the attendance might have dropped this year. My best guess as to one reason why, uh, it's probably the elephant in the room, which is the fact that you know President Trump, who was kind of the lead keynote speaker, I think he spoke for an hour forty five minutes to kind of cap uh, the conference off on Saturday early evening. You know, he has obviously been uh, been picking on, on numerous other candidates, including or n- numerous candidates or prospective candidates, um, including Governor DeSantis here in Florida. And you kind of have to wonder, I think, whether the um, emerging uh, Trump DeSantis war, if that war does in fact materialize, you have to wonder whether or not that did have an effect on attendance. Um, at the same time, there, I think one other thing that was impossible to overlook is that, you know, Trump's base like his, his his real base he he has such a lock he has such a vice grip on that base there you know on saturday afternoon i remember kind of walking to go back in, in, in into the CPAC area from the from the shabbat lunch area and you walk through and you just see kind of all the folks kind of lined up ready ready to go for trump's speech you know they're all wearing like the trump one um you know f joe biden the maga hat so you know his his, his crowd is like is really really there but I, 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 this is kind of I, why I want to do this segment on this because I don't know exactly what my takeaway is, and I kind of want to hear your your guys' thoughts on it. Is there's multiple phenomena going on here? There is like the fact that Trump's hardcore base obviously has not gone anywhere. It is very, it is just as much still there as it was on, you know, J- January seventh, twenty twenty one, or or whatever. It, it is just as much still there. But numerically speaking, it did seem like it was it, it was an off year for CPAC. Um, you know there. Were- there were only other two. There were two other, I guess, announced presidential candidates, uh, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, to the extent he counts, um, who, who who gave talks at this event. Um, I don't think either was particularly well received. There were no boos, but kind of a very tepid applause. I heard anecdotally that people started literally walking out towards the end of Vivek's speech. I was not there for it. Um, So it definitely was like a Trump fest. Right. I mean, DeSantis was not there. Glenn Youngkin uh, was not there. Um, Mike Pompeo, I think, gave a speech that no one really was talking about. So the whole thing was totally MAGA, totally Trump. But at the same time, it was just a lower affair. Um it it just was less well attended. And that's basically it. I'm kind of just curious um what you guys make of, of that report. I'm happy I went. I had a great time obviously met a lot of interesting people for the first time in person or in, in general. But I, what do you guys make of, of, of what I just said about twenty twenty four? I'd be curious.
0: I, I think this is the first CPAC that I'm missed in like ten years. Wow. Um, yeah something like that. So, I mean yeah. I went I went to school in the D.C. area, so I, I usually always went when I was here, and it, it felt like it was at its peak to me, probably because the venue was smaller in 2012. Uh, I remember Sarah Palin giving an absolute barn burner closing address in 2012 up in Woodley Park when the conference was still in the district, and uh, that was sort of tea party party era. And I never saw CPAC really match that momentum, even in the Trump years. But again, it could have been maybe because it had moved to a much more spacious, uh, cavernous, basically cavernous venue. Um, But it also because there were very real splinters um, that made it less of a family reunion type vibe and more of a um, it just had a different type of thing. Uh, a, a different type of feeling and the history of CPAC I think is is fascinating and uh worth remembering there are a lot of great people who uh, endeavored to uh, make CPAC sort of front and center and again like the conservative movement um you know does deserve to be covered by the media and I think if it weren't for for CPAC over the last several decades um there would be, you know, less, it, it, the conservative movement would get less credit for the victories that it, it does deserve credit for. Um, again, you could go back to the Tea Party where there were successful candidates that think about Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan, people who actually like really changed the game, people like Russ Vogt. Um, the conservative movement as though we look back and we say like, oh, it, it hasn't had enough victories. Absolutely true. A lot of that is because of the absolutely disgusting state that, that the Republican Party has been in for For decades, you know, it's just been a a miserable sort of bulwark against real uh, conservative change, and uh, it's not for lack of trying on behalf of conservatives. So I do think it's worth, uh, there is some really good history there, and uh, I'm not at all surprised. I do think, um, without getting too far into it, that the the allegations against Matt Schlapp hurt the uh, candidates coming. So I think that just made it difficult to get some top billing speakers and some top sponsors probably. And uh, that just, you know, you're going to have a lower crowd, you know, if someone was coming to see this person or that person, if someone was coming to see, you know, if, if there's 20% of the conservative movement, that's all in for DeSantis Um, and DeSantis isn't there, maybe, you know, a a chunk of those people don't come and that's why it feels sparser. Um, So I think that that had something to do with it, but I'm really not at all surprised by this, I think, uh, without getting anyone in trouble uh, for something that I say here. I, I think that organization behind CPAC needs to be a lot stronger um, if they expect the the conference to uh, become better. And I think it does need to become better. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I would caution against taking any larger point either way um, from CPAC about the even the conservative base, let alone the actual primary voter. Um, and just I, in either direction right like that this was clearly Trump pack he blew through the um the straw poll on the flip side um even his speech had seats in the back empty which speaks to the fact that the conference was smaller although it's difficult to get through security and there were people waiting outside but there always are and usually those those kind of top, top line speeches especially by Trump are packed and I think it does probably indicate something but on the flip side I don't I don't think that sort of it's a statement about DeSantis either I think actually just CPAC is getting more competition right um it used to be the conservative conference that everybody kind of had to go it was always a bit of a circus um they tried to mix in some more serious elements to it um but now I think for a lot of the the young people who attend CPAC from college or just after college uh, they're going to TPUSA NATCON exists right for the more serious track of conservative thought um and I just think they have more competition. And then also um, the fact that they move around a lot now, I think kind of spreads out. Like people will go to the CPAC West instead of flying across the country to DC. Um, so I, I don't know how much really to take take any of it uh, too too seriously in terms of projecting on the broader conservative movement. I do agree. I think Emily made a really good point that this is one of the few times the media actually covers um, conservatives. Uh, and covers conservative speakers and I think that is a really important function and to the extent that CPAC is like sort of starting to fall um, and not doing that as well as it it used to I think that that would be a a loss to the conservative movement so yeah
1: yeah tough to for me to draw any kind of inferences make any inferences from uh, a crowd there I mean by contrast I think probably the earliest CPAC that I ever went to was around 2010. And I know that because I was looking back at something that happened there, which was that uh, Andrew Breitbart had this, at the time, kind of infamous kerfuffle with uh, Max Blumenthal. And I was 10 feet away from him while this was all going on and kind of spent the day with him when he was at the height of his powers. And by the way, he passed uh, on March 1, I believe. So we just had that anniversary. Um. So worth remembering Breitbart, because I don't think we have this movement without him necessarily. And it's uh, god awful that we don't have him today fighting alongside us as well. But when I go back to 2010 and that era, there's so much energy at CPAC during the Obama years. And I think it's in part because for a lot of us, it was probably an awakening to the awfulness of the precursor to the woke left and how weaponized it was becoming and how it was an everyday, in-your-face kind of assault. And I think to some extent, we've probably gotten desensitized to that assault because it's so over the top and so entrenched at this point. But I will say that where we are in a political cycle obviously matters. And I have to believe that next year, CPAC will probably be significantly more charged when the field is known and set and candidates are actually out there fully competing with each other on the campaign trail so that would be kind of my takeaway is you know every cpac is its own animal and it depends on where we are in the cycle and where the momentum and the energy is but i think you're going to have significantly more in 2024 than in 2023.
0: um with that let's transition to final thoughts i'll start with just that uh, i, I want to return to that atlantic article Um, that I referenced in my segment, because like I said, it's sort of both sides, political violence, and I'm I'm not even kidding. It goes back to like the assassination of McKinley, the Palmer Raids, and repeatedly, instead of referring to people that were targeted by things like the, the Palmer Raids as communists or socialists, it just refers to them as anarchists um, in the case many of them were obviously like anarcho-communists to the sense that makes sense, um, but it wasn't like a a movement for pure anarchy, and it, it is just deeply, deeply bizarre um, because, again, like they're relitigating history through this silly lens uh, instead of recognizing that actually there, there, re- there were very real problems uh, with, with communist violence. There were very real problems with socialist violence. And that's where you get, you know, both Waco and the move bombing in, in Philadelphia. Um, when we get into these periods, where things like the FBI, like we're talking in a week where Tucker is about to release footage from what we can tell Miranda Devine. Again, this is a developing story. And that's why I originally didn't mention the SPLC thing, but it is clear now that an SPLC attorney was arrested, charged with domestic terrorism uh, at the cop city protest down in Atlanta. They're claiming it seems so far that he's a legal observer. By the time this airs, some of that might change. It sounds like a, a sort of BS excuse to me, no matter what, uh, given the SP- TLC's history of basically inciting things with its ridiculous lists that groups like the FBI use um, to target just conservative organizations that happen to have like Judeo-Christian values um, and lump them in with legitimate violent groups. What happens when you do that is you create dissent and violence, Um, you are going to create an environment. uh, And and so I just don't want to uh, gloss over the fact that when the the FBI is equating conservative groups with the very real, because of January 6, for instance, like they will overstate and uh, just totally misrepresent what happened on January 6. And that's what it seems right now, Tucker Carlson's tapes, for instance, are going to show that January 6 committee Democrats in the House added audio, deceptively added audio to CCTV clips of the Capitol riot, which is bad enough on its own, let alone deceiving your constituents and the country while you purport to police disinformation. So yes, people who are committing violence in this country, be they on the left or the right, have agency. Um, But our federal government is uh, stirring the pot, and I think in a very dangerous direction. And we do not have any position of consensus to come from right now. I don't think the consensus that heralded J. Edgar Hoover was super great. Um, and I don't think we need another J. Edgar Hoover, God forbid. Um, but we don't have a place of sort of shared patriotism right now. Um, and shared values right now as a country to uh, push back on some of this because MSNBC is, is pushing FBI propaganda. The New York Times is pushing FBI propaganda all day, every day. And that's going to create some real discord in this country. Um, and just uh, sincerely, God help us. Um,
2: yeah, to follow on what Emily said, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning at this point that the SPLC um, I don't want to say incited because it's a very you know tight. It requires a very tight definition and it should stay that way. But SPLC definitely had a hand in uh, encouraging the guy who went to go shoot up the um, Family Research Council Center uh, that that happened. Right. You know, at this point, eight nine years ago, I think probably forgotten. Uh, but but there was a direct link. He read the SPLC. Uh, sort of description of the Family Research Council, and then brought a gun, and, and a heroic security guard stopped him and got shot in the process. Um, so that's worth bringing up, I think, because I think probably for a lot of people has faded out of memory. Um, but to to bring it to the crime point um, that I think Josh made earlier when we were on this subject, um, I, I do think there are a lot of top Democrats and who are starting to realize how bad. The, the crime wave plays electorally for them, um, and they're starting to step on their progressive flanks. Uh, I think there is an interdemocratic war over this. You're seeing folks like Joe Biden in the, in the obvious example that that Josh gave, uh, but I think you're seeing it in states like New York, where I'm pretty sure, I can't be sure, uh, maybe Ben can speak to this, but I'm pretty sure some high-up Democratic pooh-bah types, um, especially those outside of New York City, are getting very frustrated because the the crime wave drove a 20 point Republican swing, right? People lost their races. Democrats lost their races because of the progressive position on crime that is really, really unpopular with voters. I think you're gonna see that inter-democratic war heat up, especially with the Lightfoot election. All of this is very clear that this is what actually one of the things that people are even Democrats and centrists are responding to at the polls is this kind of social disorder and crime. So it's food for thoughts for Republicans. And finally, I just want to recommend without, you know, going too far into it and wasting time, um, Heather McDonald has a fantastic piece out today in City Journal about the feminization. We talked about um, the university administration and the expansion of university DEI administration and other sort of diversocrats. She has a piece talking about how increasingly both the students and the administration are overwhelmingly female and what that says about the future economy what it says about our politics and what it says about um the the sort of culture and i think this is kind of a similar point that uh the anonymous twitter account Lomez uh, made in first things which caused quite a stir uh when he wrote about the longhouse but um I, th- I think those are that those are both those articles are both worth reading and i'd like to recommend them
1: So uh, I'll be brief first on this developing story and the SPLC angle. I'm seeing on Twitter, uh, Greg Price notes that the FBI has historically used the SPLC as a source for who should be considered domestic terrorists. Uh, So that really ties a perfect bow on all of this uh, and illustrates why that weaponization committee is more needed than ever. And it better be hugely aggressive for the next two years. Um, But going back briefly to the uh, higher ed reform piece of things, uh, I just wanted to flag as a worthwhile read, Scott Yenner had a piece, I think last month, uh, in American Reformer on higher ed reform, which gets to a point that I think is really the critical point, which is after you get to defunding or uh, I would say defanging all of these public institutions and not just in education, but beyond, then what do you replace them with? What Ought their aim to be? How do you go about achieving it? And how, how do you go about making it a lasting achievement such that if another executive or another uh, or legislative control switches, that you actually make those changes durable? To me, that's the long term question. I had an interview, the transcript of which is out at Real Clear Politics with Jim Banks, who's leading the anti woke caucus in the House, growing anti woke caucus. And you know, I kind of asked him the question. What you're proposing is essentially the negative of let's identify all of these corrupted public institutions and uh, expose the ways in which they've gone completely woke and then go about defunding them and uh, cutting them down to size. But then what ought those institutions be used for to the extent they are going to exist? And I think that is ultimately we have to get beyond the fact the point of the, the radical move is actually just the baseline move to then. What's the positive? What's the affirmative? And I think that will compel a lot of people. It'll provide a vision that can galvanize people beyond just the negative. And oftentimes we're focused on the negative because we're constantly on the defensive because we don't control any of these institutions. But ultimately, having a compelling positive vision is essential as well. So I think it shouldn't be just you know defund. It should be defang and replace. So I will also be quick.
3: Um, so the foundation's own yarm has had a tweet earlier today that i feel like is worth expounding upon so his yarm's tweet was quote there never has been a neutral state or a neutral government and there never will be politics require politics requires taking sides so he was quote tweeting someone else but the tweet stands on its own there um to me this is the lesson the, 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 you know if you could literally if i could summarize what NatCon, national conservatism, and broadly speaking, the whole kind of quote-unquote new right phenomenon to the extent that phenomenon is even a phenomenon anymore. All of what this entails I think can basically boil down to that one tweet. And, you know, I had Governor some on my own Newsweek podcast last week, and I, I actually asked him this exact same question. I, I basically said, like, Governor, you know, my reading of your various initiatives, including your critical race theory, your curricular stuff, your new College of Florida stuff, a lot of this amounts to the imperative to having to choose, that there is no kind of neutral way out, but you have to pick a side. And he didn't, like, answer the question with, like, a short yes or no answer, but, I, you know, you, you can listen to it yourself, it, it sounded to me – like, uh, like more or less, he answered the question. Yes, and you know, if we can just impart, or just continue to kind of impart this message to you, our NatCon squad audience, you know, I think this is such an such an important thing because no matter where you look, I mean, literally from constitutional law, and this is my whole common good originalism side project when it comes to constitutional interpretation, the imperative of. At least within kind of a zone of reasonable ambiguity, having to choose, having to pick a side. What side are you going to choose? What values are going to inform that decision? So anything to the to the trade regime. This is one of my favorite examples I like to give, you know, kind of the, the Washington Uniparty, the Washington consensus, the ascend China to the WTO mentality is that you're not actually choosing. That free trade is kind of just a let the chips fall where they may. But you know, as Orrin Cass and others like to remind us, that is a choice. You are choosing to maximize and prioritize lowest prices and consumer welfare at the expense of various other factors, such as you know, producers, industrialization, jobs, um, you know, all of that, right? So the point here is, no matter what it is, you have to choose. And you know, I like to think that week in and week out on ACON Squad, we are giving the audience a, at least a slightly better idea of how to go about choosing.
2: And on that note, uh, I think that wraps it up for the week. So on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Detman, and I'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.